Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Will M&A pick up in 2024? Will this year mark the return of IPOs? Listen to Strategic Alternatives, a podcast from RBC Capital Markets to get fresh insights on the trends and market forces impacting deal flow across sectors and find out how companies and investors are preparing for a potential surge in deal activity and what signals to watch for this year. Listen and subscribe to Strategic Alternatives, the RBC Capital Markets podcast today wherever you get your podcasts. A warm welcome to you folks. This is the On The Tape Podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Danny Moses and Dan Nathan. And today we're going to be joined by Luke Groman, founder of the firm Forest for the Trees. That's a great conversation, Dan. And just give me a second here because we're going to talk about some individual stocks. David Einhorn Somebody in our world made some comments about the market. China continues to sort of melt down. Some of these large, big cap semi names continue to skyrocket. Danny Moses has some thoughts on some dividend payers. But Luke was last on October 20th of last year. October 20th is a day that lives with me because on October 17th, 1977, there was. Leonard Skinner released Street Survivors, great album, last studio album. And obviously on October 20th was the day that their plane crashed in Gillsburg, Mississippi, killing Ronnie Van Zandt, Steve Gaines, Casey Gaines, Dean Kilpatrick, and the pilot and the co-pilot. I digress. But Luke was on the 20th. He actually knew that. And some of the songs on Street Survivors resonate with me because one of my favorite songs, Dan, is I know a little. And I got to tell you something, folks, if I'm putting it out there, I know a little about the stock market because what's gone on not only over the last year and a half, two years, but just the last couple of weeks has been death defying and has left me sort of 
in the fetal position, Dan. Nathan. Yeah, so it's interesting. I think that what you mentioned is, uh, you know, David Einhorn, uh, you know, a famed value investor, Greenlight Capital, was on the Masters in Business podcast on Bloomberg that dropped on Thursday, the day that we are recording this. And the headlines that I, I like immediately shot it over to you because mm-hmm. I know that you don't have your podcast player up and ready to go all the time. No, it's unfortunate. My favorite podcast store is yeah. it was closed today. Was but closed. but here's the deal. So some of the headlines that that kind of caught my attention. Passive investors have no opinion about value. They're going to assume that everyone else does their work. So he was just, he was kind of talking about market structure. He was talking about passive investing. These are things that you guys have talked about a great deal. I view the markets as fundamentally brokered. Value, just not a consideration for most investment money that's out there. And so like, you know, when you start hearing that sort of stuff, and this guy has had two great years. Mm-hmm. I think he was up 36% in 2022. And he was up 20 some percent last year. There are not too many long short folks in the hedge fund community that were actually up both of those years. Danny, so when you hear that sort of stuff, as long as you've been in the business, David Einhorn has been, you know, an important market voice. Is it kind of confirms some of the thoughts that you've had about some of the wacky action that we've had in the markets over the last few years? I know a little. Yeah. So (laughs) by the way, but before you even the piano solo in I Know a Little from Billy Powell is unbelievable. Now, if you don't know who Billy Powell is, shame on you. But Billy Powell was a roadie for Leonard Skinner. And one day, Ronnie Van Zant heard him playing the piano before a show. And he's like, holy shit, you can play. So he went from roadie to keyboardist wow. of Leonard Skinner. Anyway, sorry about that. Danny, please. Yeah, so Einhorn was pointing out just the advent of passive indexing, chasing indices, quants, all the stuff that price discovery is really not there. And, you know, that is a huge opportunity over the longer term for people that want to seek out good stories, certainly on the long side, that aren't in an indice or aren't over-owned or aren't over-covered by Wall Street. So I've known David a long time. I think he's one of the smartest investors of our time. He was right there kind of with us, kind of the same mindset during the global financial crisis, certainly going after Tesla at times. I admire him for that. But I think when you see names like Eli Lilly, great quarter, Moved 10% mm-hmm. on a $700 billion market cap on a good quarter and a beat. Was it that misunderstood? Was it that misunderwritten? And when you see ARM, great, went public, you know, last year at what, $51, up 60% today. That's $125 billion market cap. Again, good quarter, great business, all that stuff. But something's not right here. And what's happening is you have the haves and the have-nots. So you're going to continue to pay a premium for companies that you know are going to exceed or grow. And you're going to hammer the companies that miss. And I think what David's probably saying is that type of thing can't last too long. Value stocks that get beaten up will will be bought at some point. And growth stocks that get over-owned will be sold at some point. And that's just it. That's the timing. But you need long duration of capital to kind of achieve that. So I think that's what he's saying. And that's kind of what you're seeing right now in the market. Is you know, but, but to his credit, he's embraced that and he's adapted to it as opposed to somebody like a jackass like myself who completely understood what was going on for quite some time. I've said about passive investing for years how it was basically clouding the works, right? It was disrupting markets and you had no price discovery. Yet I wasn't smart enough to say with that said – I'm no longer going to talk about those fundamentals because fundamentals don't matter, as David pointed out. Yeah, but we're in the business of 
kind of demystifying, telling stories, kind of like doing, like at least using the tools that are our, in our toolbox, the things that we learned that were fundamentally driven, you know, when we started out in the business and trying to help people kind of figure out this game and make no mistake about it, it is a game, right? Mm -hmm. And so the game has changed. And just to quote The Wire, it's just gotten more fierce. And, oh, and, and oh, like, so, wire? well, don't worry about it. But here's the deal, okay? When I look at, let's just look at one of these names. You want to talk about broken market structure. So Arm, Okay, this was a company that SoftBank was spitting out in an IPO last fall at $51. Okay, at $51. Today, as we are recording, the stock is up $41. Okay, it is trading at $117. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's gained $50 billion in market cap. Now, you can go and we'll put in the show notes, you know, the, the quarter that they reported, the guidance that they gave for just both this year um, and next year. And this is a really important point, Guy. You said this on Market Call earlier today. We had Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital on the show the day it went public on Fast Money, okay? And you asked him, hey, listen, this is, you know, a, a semiconductor licensing company. They don't have exposure to some of the areas that are the hottest things in the market right now. Are you concerned with the valuation? And I think he gave us an answer, something like, not concerned with the valuation, because most investors are not concerned with right. public market valuations anymore. And that is kind of what's broken. Well, if you look at it again, so and this is not to beat up on ARM. This is just an illustration of what's going on. Prior to becoming a publicly traded company-ish, they were doing about $3 billion, give or take, plus or minus $100 million or so a year. So pretty much flat revenue growth. They just guided full year 25 revenue. I'm going to round up and say $4 billion, although it was just short of that. At current stock price, it's trading about $123 billion market cap. So you're talking about a company now that's trading almost 32 times revenue, yeah. which is historically obscene. But to going back to Rick's point, and then obviously David's point, clearly those things don't matter. People will say, guy, it will grow into that valuation. It's really got to grow, and it's got to do something that it hasn't done over the last few years. That's and a huge acceleration of revenue, which we're not seeing right. right now. But there's two things, Danny, and I want to get your take on this because you talk about the chase all the time, right? Portfolio managers who have to chase things. So this is actually not a function of passive investing, the thing that we're talking about. This is a function of FOMO, right? And this is a, a function of, let's just say, people looking at what happened in AMD over the last four months or NVIDIA over the last 14 months or something like that. And they see meaningful upward guidance on the out year and you tell me, do they have the visibility on 2025 right now? You know what I mean? That's causing investors to pile in. And this stock at one point that's now up, you know, 53% was up 60% you know, earlier in the day. That is pretty unnatural. And those are two very different things, the passive flows versus the FOMO flow. Yeah. And I would say the irony is here, the larger the market cap, the more outsides move that you get because of that exact reason. If a stock is in the top 20 or 30 of an index and you're judged against it and you don't own it from a market weight perspective, you get hammered. So it actually is self-fulfilling. If this was a 2 billion market cap, I have a hard time seeing it going to a 3 billion market cap, you know, on the same size and same news mm -hmm. because of what you're going to see. So yes, we've seen the chase. It's been seasonal at time, beginning of the year, end of year and so forth. And it's kind of obvious, but it is what it is. So you have to play the game that way. You have to kind of respect it. And you know, there's a lot of factor momentum or whatever they, these guys use and these quant funds use. And the newest one or the new sexy one, which was the least sexy thing in the markets for a long period of time, is dividends. 
and even companies that pay a dividend raising their dividend. It's like I've always said, earnings are a beauty pageant. And if you can come out of the beauty pageant and add some extra stuff like a dividend dance, guess what? You know, you're going to you're going to get more more eyeballs on you. So something I think we should really talk about because there's been, you know, a huge diverse move of companies cutting and raising dividends here. Yeah, sure. but I guess on the strength side, so last week on February 1st, the day after Meta reported their earnings, stock gapped up $20. And, you know, one of the, like, I guess the headlines, you know, normally you see when a company introduces a buyback guy that has not had that, a growth company, mm-hmm. you know, some people are like, oh, well, aren't there better uses of their capital than to be giving it back to shareholders, right? With Meta, it was one of those things that's like it falls into value, okay? If you think about it, it's trading at basically 20 times the out year. That's in line with the forward uh, estimate for the S&P 500. Expected, you know, double-digit earnings and sales growth, right? Really high gross margin. So it's value, it's growth. And now they introduced a $2 annual dividend, 50 cents a quarter. That's a minuscule, okay, dividend, but it does do something for an investor base, doesn't it, Danny? It kind of widens that base out a little bit. Yeah, and there's reasons that companies are now instating that dividend or raising the dividend. And that's because one, there is a very small kind of tax now on buybacks, very small. There's concern if you use your capital for M&A from the FTC that it could be blocked, right? So there's reason to, to kind of do it. And the other reason is certainly it gets in, talk about passive, gets in a lot more indices uh, when you're paying ETF. And I would just note bigger names that have been in the, in the news in the last few weeks. Walgreens Boots, WBA cut their dividend, stock got destroyed. Why do they cut their dividend? Because they want to buy back debt instead of paying cash out, right, to shareholders. And NYCB, which has been front and center for many reasons in CRE. But when you look around and you say, all right, what is a good company? that continuously raises the dividend that could surprise, because now you have to start to think like that. And I'll go straight to Walmart. Walmart's reporting on the 20th of February. They just went a three for one stock split. Yes, it does nothing to valuation people out there, stock split. However, I will tell you that the CEO of Walmart and Sam Walton used to say he wants his employees to feel like they don't have to buy fractions of shares when they go in and use their money to buy back, to buy their own stock. There is a psychological reason. However, Walmart has increased their dividend every year since 1999. I mean, you can't make it up. And so you see a name like that, Guys, I'm telling you ahead of this quarter on February 20th that that's your game of investing and our sponsor, CME, which is now literally a 5% dividend yield between the special. They raised it. They raised their quarterly dividend today again. Right. So you start to look at those names and Hershey's, you know, sweet chocolate. I mean, look at that stock today. It's up a lot on a solid dividend increase. So if that's your theme and I want to throw one other at you here, which I think could be a negative catalyst. And then I'll turn it back to you, Guy, is Blackstone Mortgage Trust, BXMT, $3 billion market cap. They're reporting pre-market February 14th. This dividend is not sustainable. $2.48 a year. Their dividend payout is 217% of what they have. You're looking for an office property company, commercial property company that has exposure. That to me is really interesting. So if you start to look, if this is the new thing and you can find companies are going to cut and companies are going to increase, as Dan says, have at it, people, because I think there's a lot of catalysts coming up in the market. A lot of things to uh, dissect there. But what I'll start with, Dan, much to your chagrin, I'm sure, is Danny just mentioned sweet chocolate. And of course, I think of the great band Sexual Chocolate, Randy Watson, in Coming to America, if you recall. Brilliant portrayal. And the great Eddie Murphy, who is a fan of this podcast, no doubt, obviously is in the upper echelon of actors of all time. I could watch Coming to America 
on a loop, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, you could. Um, it's interesting, though, that we're getting to a place right now that we're talking about catalysts for single stock trades or investing on dividends. And normally, if we were saying, I, I think the one that you mentioned, Danny, about cutting a dividend to, to kind of buy back debt, those are the sorts of things that actually might be perceived as pretty positively, right? Especially when the cost of credit has risen so quickly and, and the like here. I mean, some of these companies were doing that pretty well when interest rates were mm-hmm. much lower, um, if you will. We're just kind of at a weird spot in the market, and it goes back to passive is basically turning lots of fund managers who have benchmarks into FOMO traders right here and disregarding a lot of things that we know will ultimately correct at some point because you just can't have things go so far out of whack. You know, like we've highlighted this again, and I don't mean to kind of harp on this. And for some of you guys who think we harp on things too much, we were harping a lot on Tesla's fundamentals last year or the last couple of years. Well, the stock you know, has sold off because of its poor fundamentals, okay? And so when we highlight the fact that NVIDIA, since January 2nd or 3rd, has gained $850 billion, $850 billion. I'm just going to say that again so it can sink in. In that time period, in a month, because of what its customers have had to say, because of what its competitors have to say, don't think that it can't go the other way too, right? And so like, that's kind of one of the reasons why if everybody out there has their pom-poms out and we spent some time earlier in the week on Market Call and OK Computer, we'll put the OK Computer conversation I had with Deirdre Bosa in the show notes. We're highlighting a credit analyst over at Barclays had a sell NVIDIA note. This is not the equity analyst. There's not a single equity analyst who covers it on the street. And there are about 60 of them who rate the stock a sell, okay? So there is tremendous groupthink going on here, and it seems like a total disregard for a bear case that might just be early, just like the Tesla bear case was a little early, right? So I just kind of want to make that point because I think we're at a, a level of euphoria in the stock market when stories look good. We just highlighted the arm that's trading up 55% as we speak. That just seems unnatural, Danny. Yeah, listen, we talked about Tesla a few weeks ago, and I actually said, there's no reason to own a Tesla when you can own a little Ford or GM and then a little NVIDIA or pick some other tech company that has AI. Because if your reason to own Tesla is not just the auto business, but their other tech business, which doesn't ever seem to get off the ground, then forget Tesla and buy these other things, right? If that's your viewpoint. But yes, it's not sustainable. And the problem with it is this is not about being bearish people. This is being practical. I really mean that. And the problem is, what is your sell point? What is the trigger? What is the thing that has to happen to people to say, you know what, the momentum's over? And that's the scary part. What are you looking for? I mean, I asked Luke Roman the question, you guys will hear it on the back half is, you know, he's turned a little bit bullish. I'm like, okay, what's the sign you're looking for? And so when things do start to sell off, you're going to want to own the names that can uphold and kind of validate their valuation. And maybe that means down 10 to 20%. But you're right, Dan, some of these names, you have the risk of down 30 to 40%. And, you know, again, it just just diversify. That's all, that's all we're saying. It's not you know, about selling everything. I, I'm, so. I'm with you. And it's interesting because if you believe that, you know, we're getting, again, ahead of ourselves in some of these high-flying names, you say, Guy, well, where would you be? And I'll tell you, I'll continue to say that despite the fact that some of these big cap integrated names have done nothing over the last month and a half, two months, actually some of them gone down. There are other downstream names have done extraordinarily well. And a lot of these names report in April, a name like Phillips 66, for example, which has been on fire. We've talked about Marathon Petroleum, MPC, a number of different times. So there are names that work. And the one that I've talked about for a number of reasons and really has this stealth rally off the lows has been Valero, which is we're sitting here today, is trading north of 140 and was within earshot 
of its all-time high. So despite the fact that energy's sort of been left on the wayside, Dan, there's still a lot of stocks in the energy space that make a lot of sense. Yeah, and you've highlighted a, a bunch of those names. You've highlighted the potential for M&A. It seems like there's a new deal every week, okay? So that should kind of put some upward pressure on the space. Now, I know, Danny, this is a space that you've liked also, but one of the things that really kind of troubles me a little bit, and this is on a week where the Shanghai Composite has had a really nice run. I think it's up eight or so percent from, I think, probably close to a 10-year low. It, it was definitely below the pandemic lows. And I think you have to go back a while. We know that there's been a bunch of movement there on the regulatory front and on the um, you know the stimulus front and, and the like here. But you know you see those numbers out of Alibaba the other day and the stock sold off, I think probably 10% in the last couple of days based on that. And you say to yourself, some of the news about deflation, some of the news about the commercial real estate bubble that we know has been unwinding over the last couple of years that people had been warning about for a dozen years. You know what I mean? It seems like the deflationary spiral that they have going on over there at some point is going away on the rest of the world's economy. And it just like I, you know, I've been mentioning that for a while. I'm not an expert on China. I'm certainly not an economist, but it seems like right now we have a 10 year yield at 4.15% because we're worried over here about inflation reigniting a little bit, right? Maybe the, the gains that, you know, the Fed chair Powell has talked about that he still does not have the confidence to tell us when he's going to cut interest rates because they've come down, inflation's come down enough. I just, I I think we're in this this really weird, Danny, push and pull between what's going on in China. You know, like we had 3.1% GDP growth last year. And I think China's was what? 4.5 or something like that. It's lowest in 30 years or something like that. And you say to yourself, you know, 4.5, that's great. No, that's not great. I mean, five years ago, it was 10% or something like that. You know what I mean? So I just think that like, there's something going on in the global economy. And right now, I, I think the US, it feels like, oh no, it just doesn't feel as good as 50 year low unemployment, consumer confidence really high, stock market at all time highs, wage growth pretty good. Like all these things are, are screaming strong economy. Right. Yet meanwhile, if you poll people, People are so down on the economy when they when they're asked about the economy. The president's approval ratings when it comes to the economy are probably at historic lows in the face of everything you just talked about, and there are reasons for that. But getting back to the China thing, the decoupling between China and the global markets started somewhere in the middle of 2022, and it's been severe. So the question one has to ask themselves is: Is China going to catch up and reaccelerate and catch up to the? global economy, which is effectively the United States and Europe, or the rest of the global market is going to catch up to what's going on with China. That's the bet right now, because this divergence is not going to continue, Danny. Yeah, the, it was the lowest CPI print since when? September 2009 over in China. And I think what we're seeing here, and, and when you look in the US, again, the haves and the have-nots, I mean, you look at the credit card debt um, hitting new highs at 1.13 trillion, delinquencies up 50% in 2023, serious delinquencies, the highest since when? 2009, that doesn't affect obviously the people that are maybe investing in the stock market per se. But when the average interest rate on credit card debt is 20.74% or something like that, obviously it starts to eat into people's wallets. And I think, Dan, you just described a situation that we've been talking about now for a couple months that the US, at least part of the US stock market, is the sexiest game in town. It looks great. It's growing and it's it's narrowing into these names. And yeah, you get you get to add a few names every other week, it feels like. Let's throw Lily in, let's throw Arm, let's throw some of these other names that start, you know, to chase. And you are seeing some names fall out of favor, like we talked about before with a Tesla and an Apple, which is on a relative basis, is not performing. But 
I think that's really what it is. Money trying to find a home where there's growth. China is going into the Lunar New Year. What is it? The Wooden Dragon. I think it starts on the 10th of February. So they've done a lot of things in preparation for that to kind of just clean the slate, a new financial regulator to set the table, I think, for these kind of next two weeks. So they can kind of start over again when they come back. But I just think it's just money trying to find a home. And when you use valuation as a reason to short, it can take a long time. So obviously wary of that as well. Yeah. And again, you know, I've said this a bunch over the last few months. I feel like the last few months felt a lot like late 2021 in the stock market. There was still a lot of enthusiasm, but under the hood, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't acting particularly well. Some of the data that we we're starting to see that was the post COVID kind of bounce was starting um, to moderate a little bit. Some of the comparisons were going to be getting a little tougher. I kind of feel like we're there right now, but the disconnect between what all of those, you know, data points we just highlighted about the economy, you know, like we had an economy that grew 3% last year. Nobody expected that. Most people coming into last year, and we've talked about this at, at, at length, were expecting a recession at some point. Well, the Fed in mid-December, they told us they're expecting 1.4% growth. That would be cut in half, right, from the growth that we, the unexpected growth um, that we had last year. And I think, Guy, you're alluding to this article in the Wall Street Journal that really caught my eye. And it gave a lot of examples that makes you kind of think a little bit um, like about the data that we're seeing, the headline data that we're seeing and say, is this really, you know, what's going on? It was, I think, on Wednesday or so, why Americans are so down on a strong economy. I mean, the Biden administration, when you think about all the fiscal stuff they put in place, you think about where wage growth is, you think about where unemployment is, you think about, um, you know, obviously inflation. I think people are still stuck with food prices um, and, and, and the like here, but gas at the pump has come down a lot. And there's just this huge disconnect. And again, this is obviously an election year and we're going to have this going back and forth. Republicans are going to try to make the economy sound absolutely horrible, right? Democrats are going to try to make it sound at least as good as the headlines show it to be. But I don't think this is going to get better anytime soon. And the last point I'll just make here is that as we get into the one-year anniversary of SVB and First Republic and all this sort of stuff, like, at the end of the day, man, like what are the surprises that could actually decelerate growth? You know, we keep hearing from some of these consumer companies and, and, and some of these fast food companies and digital ad companies that the war in the Middle East has suppressed demand. Well, I don't know about you guys. The war in the Middle East seems very contained right now, at least between Israel and Gaza, and obviously what's going on in the Red Sea, that has potential massive implications as far as inflation and supply chains and the like, and obviously the bombings that have gone on in Syria and Jordan and Iraq by us and the UK over the last week kind of hint to something bigger. But by the same token, there's a lot of talk of a, a ceasefire. So, you know, like there's lots of things out there that could cause the economy to slow meaningfully. Yeah, it's interesting. McDonald's, obviously the top of the food chain, no pun intended. But one of the things that the pushback is their prices are too high. So think about that for a second. You hear from a McDonald's and that sort of dovetails what you heard from Dollar Gen a year and a half or so ago. People are trading down. So why are people pissed off? I'll tell you why. Because they say, I watch television. They tell me inflation's going down and they know it's not going down. It's going up less fast. And that's what people are doing right now. People are combating inflation 
using credit. And now consumer credit, consumer debt in this country for the first time is north of $17.5 trillion. You outlined credit card debt being $1.13 trillion. And I think the average rate, not that it matters, is closer to 21.5%. That's the problem. That's why people are pissed off. And that's why we can hear about GDP and unemployment rate below 4% till the cows come home. But people feel like they're put in a corner and they can't get out of it vis-a-vis the wage growth, which is there, but clearly they're not keeping up with prices. So we just mentioned, obviously, we're coming up on the, the, the regional banking crisis of last year, right, where we saw you know some of the biggest banks in, since the financial crisis go under. And it's kind of interesting here as we're almost anniversarying that, if we think of like one of the concerns was obviously commercial real estate, the debt that some of these banks had held because of the kind of disruptions that we had last year, and obviously the weakening commercial real estate market, not just here, but obviously abroad. It's interesting, Danny, that in Guy and I spent a little time talking about this earlier in the week. Look at how Carlisle's trading. Look at how KKR is trading. Look at how Apollo is trading. So some of these private equity companies, they're blowing out. They're making new 52-week lows at a time where the money center banks have just stalled out. Mm-hmm. The KRE, which we talked about, the regional banking index, has come off and has actually broken the uptrend that it's been in from the uh, October lows or so. So it's interesting when you think about exposure to commercial real estate and everyone's been waiting for another shoe to drop. You know what I mean? And I think your antennas got up because you heard Treasury Secretary Yellen talking about commercial real estate the other day. And so it's kind of interesting that like what these private equity companies are doing in the public markets right now and what we think of some of the risks that exist and probably on their balance sheets as we've seen this huge push into private credit also. Yeah. So, Dan, as it relates to these large private equity companies, obviously they all have exposure to real estate. But as far as a large percentage exposure, they don't have it. You do see pockets of it, which you've seen at Blackstone, obviously BREIT. And then now what I've talked about and previewed this Blackstone Mortgage Trust, which is going to be reporting next week. So I just think as far as how meaningful it is to those companies, I just don't think it's as meaningful as we've seen in some of these regional banks, most notably recently NYCB. Yellen's testimony that she gave before Congress these past few days certainly highlighted that they're watching it, they're aware of it. They're not saying as far as say it's contained, but they're saying that they think that we can deal with it. And we get news every day. And we had this private bank and Germany, I won't try to pronounce the name of it, that the bonds got crushed based upon a report by an analyst talking about their exposure to commercial real estate. And so I think we're going to keep seeing this stuff occur. And maybe at some point it'll matter, but it feels like slowly, 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 then maybe all at once. So hopefully there's not a high, high profile blow up that goes on here, but it certainly is on people's radars. Look, New York Community Bank, I think a hundred billion dollars worth of assets. So in terms of market cap, it might not be a big deal in terms of assets. I mean, that's not insignificant. And again, It might be specific to them without question, but it doesn't mean other banks don't have similar problems lurking around on their balance sheets as well. And, you know, one of the things, Dan, we talked to Luke Groman about, and I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but a rising dollar is something not a lot of people are talking about enough. And dollar yen, for example, which peaked, I want to say, Danny, around November 10th, north of 151, traded all the way back down to 140. Very quietly, nobody talking about the fact that dollar yen is now north of 149 yet again. And that strengthening dollar becomes a bit of a wrecking ball for markets. So keep an eye on what's going on with the dollar as well, because I don't think that's being reported enough, Danny Moses. Yeah, well, you had a little bit of news out of the BOJ saying, well, they're probably going to end NERP. They're certainly not going to do anything more than that in the coming months. So I think that was somewhat of a dovish, which obviously makes their rates go lower, which makes their yen weak and mm-hmm. et cetera. So yes, on the margin, this dollar, you know, certainly the risk and Luke Roman, to your point, talks about it. Dollar running away and higher is certainly a risk to the equity markets. It's sure. absolutely shocking to me, 
though, again, we have a 10-year 4.16. We have a U.S. dollar index. The Dixie at 104 is up from, what, 101 or something like that. We have an S&P basically at all-time highs, and we go back to, you know, the valuation. I mean, when you think of the input costs of higher dollar, we heard a lot um, of commentary on Q4 earnings and guidance about currency adjusted, especially when companies miss. They were blaming it on that. Apple certainly did, right? You think about all that and just the disregard for those sorts of inputs, because when the market was screaming into the end of last year, the consensus was that we were going to have five or six rate cuts, right? Like, so like to me, the fact that those have been cut in half and possibly pushed out, right? Like, I I just don't understand how, and I I know I sound a little ranty right now, but I just don't understand that there's absolutely just total disregard for that. So the level of complacency at a time where we're seeing really funky price action. And again, you know what? You could point to Snap. It lost 35%. Mm -hmm. You know, Air Products, chemical company got nailed after their earnings. There's probably a couple others that got hit really hard, but none of them are particularly significant. Significant. When you think of the market cap gains that we have seen from some of these biggest names when they blow out, arm today, $50 billion like that, that is uh, it's a little insane guy. That's what everybody is focused on. Danny said beauty pageant before. I mean, in terms of stocks, it is a beauty pageant. So you're going to find the most attractive stocks out there. You're going to hone in on them. And you're not going to look at some of the, I don't want to say devastation, but some of the problems that are below the surface that nobody wants to seem to bring up because the S&P at 5,000 effectively masks everything. We have reached the final week of the NFL season, the league where they play for pay. The Chiefs of Kansas City playing the 49ers of San Francisco. Danny, I think you come into this week a robust 32 and 25, if I'm not mistaken, which is a serviceable year, if not a very good year. But before you give us your pick, you have some thoughts on what's going on, again, below the surface in this whole sports gambling arena. Yeah, you're just seeing the convergence of kind of sports and media and gambling. And when you see the news come out yesterday that blindsided the leagues and blindsided certainly Fubo, right? If you look on the media channel there, Disney, which owns ESPN, and then Fox, obviously sports, and then Warner Brothers, which is Discovery are partnering up, right? They each have rights to some of these leagues. They're going to distribute live sports how they see fit. Let's just put it that way. And so the cable companies certainly are getting more ancient by the day. The leagues themselves didn't even know about it. They said they certainly want to make sure that it's being distributed appropriately, which I'm sure will be. But this seems to be the trend. And when you think about the value of some of these sports teams, which we've seen, don't tell me that they're not enhanced from all the gambling, which obviously creates more eyeballs. You look at the Orioles sale, which just occurred, you know, I think it was $1.7 billion, whatever it might be. So the trend here is the convergence of kind of sports and gambling and media. And look at the performance of these sports gambling companies as we head into the Super Bowl. Look at DraftKings, right? Stock is completely in a breakout mode here, I think north of $43. Genius Sports, which I've talked about at times, which is kind of the B2B provider of data, which licenses data from the NFL to create in-game bets. Flutter just listed, you know, a couple of weeks ago on the New York Stock Exchange, FLUT. These these things probably still have a little bit to run. Now, they are seasonal to a degree. You know, they used to say buy the home builders after the Super Bowl. Maybe you sell these things after the Super Bowl. I don't know, but certainly something to keep an eye on. Listen, I have said for a long time, that whenever Patrick Mahomes is an underdog, you just take him. I've ridden that through this season. And the Chiefs are catching two points. San Francisco, I think, is the, absolutely the better football team. But you have to assume if you take him, that Brock Purdy, the quarterback of San Fran, is not going to make any mistakes. And I just think he will. And I got to just take the Chiefs plus two. I don't love it. But what I do love 
is the over 47 and a half points. I actually think this game's going to be a shootout. So I'm giving out, which I haven't really done, but it's Super Bowl and over under. So I'm going to take the Chiefs, but somewhat as a hedge, but someone I think I can win both is to take over 47 and a half points. So that's it. I got hot at the end of the year. Let's see if it continues. I took the Chiefs last year in the Super Bowl as an underdog under the same theory and loaded up on them at halftime then as well. So those are my two picks here, boys. Fast track. I agree with the over. I'd love to see the Niners win for a myriad of different reasons, Dan, but you know what? It's really painful. It's like betting against NVIDIA. It's effectively what you're doing when you're betting against the Chiefs. All right, Danny, I'm not sure if you're going to like this, but I'm also taking the Chiefs, getting two points. And I like the over. I wasn't even thinking about the over until I got you. So, so you and I, we're locked in here, buddy. All right. So we're going to end the All 2023 right. season on the same note. Wonder Twin Powers activate. Form of us both winning the same bet. Let's see if we can pull it off. All right, fair enough. And I'm, you know, listen, I am very glad that you had a late season run here in the playoffs. You really actually caught steam at the right time. So there you go. And folks, stick around for our conversation with Luke Groman. You're not going to want to miss it. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to the On The Tape podcast now. This next guest last joined us on October 20th of last year, and we actually talked about the significance of that date. That's a rock and roll thing. However, the significance of that date also coincides with effectively when yields were at their zenith within a couple weeks thereabouts. So Luke Roman, the founder of unique macroeconomic research firm Forest for the Trees, joins us again. Luke how are you? I'm doing great, Guy. How are you doing today? That's another story for another time. I'm fine. I'm a bit exercised, but I'm thrilled that you're joining us again. And as I mentioned, listen, October, November of last year, yields, 10-year yields were going effectively from 4% up to 5% in a straight line. We've obviously seen a lot happen since. So from October till now, it's sort of a 30,000-foot level. What are your thoughts on a lot of these happenings? At a 30,000-foot at a level, I think we have seen 
uh, a series of steps taken by U.S. policymakers to essentially relieve the stresses that we were seeing at the long end of the Treasury curve at that moment in time when I was last on. When I was on October 20th, we had already were probably several Fed speakers deep into, I want to say, October 6th. You saw yields really get away from them over the next 10 or 12 trading days, seven or eight Fed speakers came out and they all said basically the same thing, which was the bond market is doing our job for us. So I took that as, okay, the Fed all of a sudden is starting to jawbone the dollar down. They're trying to jawbone financial conditions looser, which were tightening very rapidly with that move in the 10 year that you were talking about. And then paired with that, I think arguably more important importantly, was on the October 31st or November 1st, whatever it was, quarterly refunding announcement. She surprised basically everybody by shifting issuance from the long end to the bill market in a much more pronounced fashion than most of the people that pay really close attention to that were expecting. And essentially, basically, that meant that she was funding the government out of the reverse repo program, which was basically just QE that had been done in the past and sterilized in the reverse repo program. So it was sort of stored up QE that we put in the reverse repo program and began bringing out of storage to finance bills to take pressure off the long end of the uh, yield curve. I think it's really important those two things together, the Fed job owning and what Yellen did, if you look at what the effects of nominal outright QE is or was historically. It was softer dollar, loosening financial conditions, a net reduction in long-term duration supplies, long-term treasury, and an increase in bank reserves. And if we look at what the effective result of what the Fed did with the jawboning, followed by what Yellen did with shifting issuance to the front end and basically financing the government through November, December, and into January out of the reverse repo program in some significant way. The effects were the exact same as QE. Bank reserves went up as they came out of reverse repo, spent into the economy. They end up in the bank reserves. The bank reserves go up. Financial conditions loosen. The dollar softens. Net duration supplies are reduced somewhat, not by the Fed buying them, but by Yellen just never issuing them. And so what we had was the liquidity response across markets, across financial conditions, November, December into January. And I think that brings us to where we are from a 30,000 foot view into what we just went through last week with the quarterly refunding, where now we've taken it in the other direction. Yellen surprised me that she didn't keep this going. She actually increased uh, duration issuance, uh, so shifted some back to the long end, quarter over quarter, all else equal, that's dollar positive, risk negative. You had Powell come out, and after he was tighter policy in October, looser policy in November, December, tighter again, obviously twice last week. He's hawked markets away from a tightening in March. And so he's kind of reversed as well. So there's, I think, a tactical way to look at what they did over the last couple months. Looser in October, November that we benefited from. Tighter tactically in response to what they just talked about last week. They, Yellen and, and Powell, with the latest quarterly refunding update and then the Fed meeting last week. But 
if we take a step back strategically, this starts to look like yield curve control without calling it yield curve control. We're micromanaging financial conditions by jawboning, by the issuance schedule. Okay, we needed them looser to contain the long end back in November. Great, we did that. Okay, now Wall Street's taking it too far the other way. Conditions have gotten too loose. Okay, 10 years down to 375. This doesn't help us either. Curve's really reinverted. Okay, let's start sticking some more supply at the back end. Let's have Powell type. Tactically, it's not great for risk. Strategically, to me, it's actually really good for risk because you're seeing sort of yield curve control light type actions continuing without them having to call it. That's my 30,000 foot view since we last talked. I've been waiting to do this for since I knew you were coming on a few weeks ago. Luke, we've lost you from the dark side. So we've lost you from the dark side. What Yellen did, in my opinion, was a Jedi mind trick. So that's all the Star Wars I have for you. Don't worry, guy, we won't go down that rabbit hole. Here's my <laughs> issue. Your thesis, and I was in your camp, you'll be back in the camp someday, but part of the what you thought that the market or the economy was going to go into recession was based upon, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the bond market, we would, the Fed would lose control of the bond market to a degree and that prices would sell off, yields would go higher, and that would cause, and we've seen iterations where we, got to 5% on the 10-year, you can see what happens, things start to break. So that was your thesis, if I'm not mistaken. And you had to know, or now you're convinced, that the Fed will be there, the Treasury will be there at every step of the way to massage any of these issues that may occur that may cause that. So your thesis is somewhat technical or artificial in the sense of, we kind of all knew the Fed was there, the bulls in the market that believe, hey, don't fight the Fed, they're going to be cutting, That's they're going to do whatever it takes. That moral hazard thing is back, obviously, into the market. Is it that simple now, just in terms of just ignoring the stuff? Because let's be clear, if Yellen had made those announcements like she did at the end of October, beginning of November, and the market didn't react positively and yields kept moving, you may have a totally different narrative right now, is that people are seeing how big the deficit is, how big our debt is. It's just a fly on an ass. doesn't matter. I threw some stuff at you, but bring me back here and, and tell me where I'm not being correct or in your mindset here. My North Star in all of this is... Treasury market dysfunction will not be allowed full stop. It may be allowed to start, but it will not be allowed to persist. And we have seen that repeatedly, I would argue, since at least September 2019 with the repo rate spike, right? That was, yes, there were regulatory issues. End of the day, too much supply, not enough balance sheet. Repo goes to 8 to 10%. Fed steps in in 48 hours, reverses two years of balance sheet reduction in 48 hours. That was the first clue in my view. We saw it again in March 2020 when the treasury market at the lows crashed with the COVID crisis. We've seen it September 22, March of 2023, BTFP. The banking was a symptom. It wasn't a banking issue. It's a treasury problem because banks have $4.2 trillion of treasuries and mortgage backs they can sell. In fact, that they were encouraged to buy by their regulators so that they could sell for liquidity. But now they don't want them selling that for liquidity because they're going to contribute to what is already $2 trillion in net issuance plus $9 trillion in refinancings that needs to get done this year. And so my North Star is, is treasury market dysfunction will not be allowed to persist for very long. Okay, what's treasury market dysfunction? I would argue it is, I think we've talked about this before, the, forget about what I would argue, what we have seen has been whenever the treasury move index by Harley Bassman hits 130 on the upside, more dollar liquidity comes within weeks, if not days, like clockwork since 2019. And so that is my North Star. Ultimately, you can see what this has been good for. It's been great for gold over TLT, right? If you look at the pairs, GLD over TLT since 2022, boom. Bitcoin over TLT, boom. 
S&P over TLT, boom. S&P industrials, even getting away from sort of the very narrow market that we're having, that S&P might not be a great metric, which is something I tend to agree with. Okay, let's look at the S&P 500 industrials. Boom. It's the same chart. And, and the point here is to me, the trade is... 60-40 is dead from the standpoint that the fiscal situation of the U.S. is such that if enough dollar liquidity is not supplied, TLT sells off more than gold. It sells off more than stocks. It sells off more than industrials. And if we go back then to my North Stars, they're never going to let that happen for very long in the world in which we are in an election year, etc. They're going to supply the dollar liquidity relatively quickly, and those pairs will work by the numerator going up more than TLT. And that's my core view. So we can ignore our debt for now, fair. We can ignore the deficit, fair. But on the margin, again, we're not talking about a huge difference in terms of the tenor paper being issued. I would actually argue that while they're preparing to stop quantitative tightening, that there was an opportunity here with less issuance being done at the longer end of the curve to actually start outright selling some of the Fed's balance sheet. Obviously, God forbid we ever even discussed something like that, right? We're not under $7 trillion yet, but hey, Instead of just not reinvesting, let's go sell 200 billion of or three if there's such demand out there. So I guess my point is, what is it going to take or what do we need to look for? If you're bullish and people are bullish on the market, what is your number one warning sign? Is it just rates moving up? Is it inflation prints that start to come in higher than expected and we people start to panic that the Fed's going to either not be able to cut or going to have to raise? What should people be watching that are out there that are bullish in the market? They should be watching for a sign that Powell and or Yellen are willing to stand aside, let the Treasury market defund the United States Defense Department, entitlement obligations, and let a Treasury auction fail. If you get a sense that one of those three things are going to happen, holy cow, look out, that's going to be really bad stock market environment. The reason I bring those three things up is when you look at what the U.S. government spends money on, it's three things, right? 125% of receipts right now are entitlements, defense, interest. Yes, they can, if they were to outright sell. To me, I think the reason they didn't outright sell is a dog that's it's a case of the dog that didn't bark. They didn't sell because it can't. The long end, the depth of the long end is a myth. It, it isn't there. And a lot of the things we've been watching them do with all of these mind tricks they refer to, which I, I don't disagree with, are sort of, you know, this is not the fiscal crisis you're looking for. This is the deepest and most liquid market in the world, right? It's bullshit. Excuse my language. But it isn't because otherwise they'd be doing what you're saying, in my view. If Powell had the chance to do this, right? In last March. Fine. Listen, banks, we told you to buy high quality liquid assets, 2014, 16, 18. We suspend the SLR regulations in March 2020 to basically buy more treasuries on unlimited leverage. When we regulated you into this a decade ago, it was so that in a crisis, you could sell these things because this is the deepest, most liquid market in the world. Okay. The crisis is here. We're trying to unwind our balance sheet. Commercial real estate has issues, blah, blah, blah. Powell had every ability to just say, you know what? Great. Signature Valley or Silicon Valley Signature Bank, sell them, sell treasuries in a treasury sell-off, raise the cash to pay out the dollars. If you're upside down, then you're insolvent. Great. Then we'll wind you up. We'll fire your management. The bondholders are on the bank. We'll wind this thing down like you're supposed to wind banks down and companies down in capitalism. And oh, by the way, everybody over 250000 in deposits in those banks, we told you that, were, that, that those were only guaranteed up to two fifty. So Oprah with your $800 million in it, whatever she allegedly had, sorry, it's gone. It's gone. 
if you see a sign that the Fed is willing to stand aside and let that happen, or when you look at the U.S. fiscal position and the amount of cuts that you would need to sort of sustain or get the, the, the deficit back to sustainability, if you're not going to cut rates and reduce interest expense right, of our big three, then you're looking at 30 to 40% immediate and permanent cuts to entitlements and defense, not someday now and forever. And that's just to get it back to like a 2%, 3% of GDP deficit. And that also sets aside the fact, it's not even speculation, the fact that cutting those line items because they're so big would actually drive a recession and that deficit would actually increase. So you'd go into a spiral. So the bear case on the economy, in my view, the bear case on the market is that Powell and or Yellen are willing to stand aside and defund DOD in the middle of what we're going through in Gaza, Red Sea, Taiwan, etc. in an election year, unlikely, or slash entitlements in an election year by 30 to 40% forever, unlikely, or is willing to stand aside and let treasury market dysfunction get to the point where we have a treasury auction failure, which sounds crazy until you take a step back the first week of November and realize we had a five basis point tail on a 30 year auction. Like it's not inconceivable. Let that thing get to 10 basis points, 12 basis points, 15 bit effective failures of an auction. If they're willing to do that, that's terrible for risk assets. And then again, 10 basis point tail and the Fed says, eh, we're going to sell 200 billion next month. Or another hundred billion next month, hundred billion next month. So then the next month it's another tail. Then it's another tail, and that's what you'd need, I think, to get to really be have a bearish view on stocks. Unfortunately, the fact that they'd be willing to stand aside in that manner. There's a lot to be concerned about, without question. So here's the way I'm looking at the world. Okay, the best thing that happened to the market last year, somewhat counterintuitively, but it makes sense, was the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, and then the subsequent failures that we saw for a myriad of different reasons. What's going on now over the last few months? All this geopolitical risk is bullish for treasuries. In other words, there's a flight to quality in the form of treasuries. I think what's happened with New York Community Bank is one of the reasons we've seen yields on the margins go lower from here. I think yields would be higher, but for that, over the next year, I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, close to $9 trillion of government debt matures. China has their own issues. I think we're all aware of what's going on there. Japan clearly has their own issues. So my question to you, I guess who it is, who is the incremental buyer of the $9 trillion-ish of effectively debt that's going to need to be issued-ish over the next year or so? And how does that play out? It's one of these questions that has a huge asterisk or condition attached to it, which, and that huge condition or, or asterisk is, what's the level of the dollar? Because if the dollar's here or higher, there really is no marginal buyer and yields are going to go up at the long end until we find that. And the problem is we know that at 5%, it doesn't work for anybody because our debt and deficits are too high. And then you risk getting into that debt spiral dynamic, which in the short run would be terrible for risk, but they would have to stand aside. Otherwise, it's they're going to come in with some sort of liquidity to sort of calm that down. If you get the dollar lower from here, paradoxically, you would think that would be inflationary. It will be on a leg and that it would be bad for bonds as a result, but we know it's not. In the short run, it is absolutely not. We know that because we just saw it happen. The dollar went from 107 to 102, 103, and the 10-year went from 5 to 375. Some of that is just due to technicalities of where FX hedge 10-year treasuries are yielding, right? So if you look at the FX hedged yield on a 10-year treasury for a Japanese investor, last week it was still like negative 2.6%. They're better off buying JGBs. And you can see this post-2020, if you run a chart of the yen dollar cross against the 10-year treasury yield, like the correlation's like 
what? The dollar gets stronger. Foreigners have $13 trillion of dollar-denominated debt around the world. They also own $7.6 trillion of treasuries. So if the dollar gets too strong, they need dollars to service dollar-denominated debt. They sell treasuries. U.S. banks, they've got $4.2 trillion of duration uh, between treasuries and MBS. They will sell that if they need dollars. So again, if the dollar gets too strong, they're going to be selling alongside foreigners, alongside Yellen for her one and a half to two trillion dollar net deficit and her nine, almost nine trillion dollars in refinancing. So you tell me what the dollar does, and I'll tell you what yields do. The dollar goes down. I think the long end of the yield curve will stay relatively contained. I think markets will be okay. The dollar goes up from here. Katie bar the door. We're going to go right back to the third quarter, 2013, because foreigners will be selling. Banks will be selling. Yellen will be selling. Yellen will be refinancing. Powell will be selling. There's nobody with the balance sheet to take the other side of that at these prices. And we know, okay, great. It's a price sensitivity issue, but we know at 5%, the whole the wheels come off the car. That's the dollar gets too high. Yield ten years going back to five, and then they're going to come in with more liquidity unless they're willing to stand aside. Luke, can you explain, maybe dumb it down a little bit for our listeners slash viewers here? Real interest rates, that two percent spread that you talk about, I think between real and nominal or whatever. You know, when you get to that two percent level, why that is such an important point and why it's such a trigger in the markets. Real interest rates are, are just what your nominal minus whatever your inflation is, right? Positive real interest rate of 2% implies that you're getting two points more than inflation in terms of your yield on the bond. Why that's important and is there's a white paper by Charles Calamiris. He wrote it last June, St. Louis Fed. It's out there in the wild. I'd encourage people to track it down. He pointed out that if the U.S. got to, or global real rates got to 2%, if U.S. got to 2% real rates, positive real rates, it would put the U.S. into a fiscal dominance position almost immediately. Fiscal dominance is to oversimplify the point where the United States cannot afford It's true interest-like obligations without either printing the money or negative real interest rates. If you look at entitlements plus gross interest expense, once you get the 2%, positive 2% real rates, you end up in a situation where your receipts don't cover that. And you either have to print or you have to default. And they print. But the point is fiscal dominance is the fiscal situation is determining your monetary policy not your monetary policy and whether you want to fight inflation or whether you're happy with unemployment, et cetera. We're back under two at this moment, right? I don't know what exactly you're looking. I would call it 1.6. I don't know where we are exactly. But I guess what I'm asking is, I asked you early on in this interview, what should people be watching? And obviously, if real interest rates move higher, if that gap goes back to two or north, what happened when it got to two last time? I'm saying the bond market started to crack, right? So I guess you can have inflation move its way back up and narrow the spread, or you can have inflation drop down, but real interest rates stay high and that widens it. I guess what I'm saying is, what's the important thing we should be looking for? I don't know which is more important because ultimately it's six of one or half dozen of the other in terms of the reaction, right? So if you get the two, you're going to have a bond market issue. We know that. And then that, A, that's risk off for a moment. And then they come in with more dollar liquidity. If you go in the other direction, then you end up with real rates too low and and inflation comes back on a lag. And when that happens, you lose the long end. It's a really important point that you raised that I think is still wildly underappreciated in markets, which is there's this window of 2%. If they lose control of the long end at positive 2% real rates, and I don't know what the real rate is where you start to see inflation pick back up. I don't know if it's one positive or if it's zero or if it's negative one, but it's not that far 
from here either. And if inflation picks back up, you're going to lose the long end too. So it's one of these situations we're not quite there yet, but we are quickly moving toward because this the window closes really as the debt rises, right? You know, the more leverage you have, the smaller that window is going to be between losing in the long end because of the positive and losing the long end because of inflation. It sets up a situation over the next, I think it probably comes in the next nine to 18 months where the only choice the Fed has is not whether they want inflation or deflation, but whether they want to lose the long end of the treasury curve by tightening or by loosening. Because either choice, they're going to lose the long end. And that's where, paradoxically, I think markets, S&P, industrials, gold, Bitcoin, stocks, I think they all go up and to the right at a 45 degree angle as we near that moment. Because I think that is the smart play because as we near that moment, you have to decide. It, it brings everything down to one decision. Will Powell and Yellen stand aside and let the long end go, no matter what that implies for funding defense, funding entitlements, and treasury expense, or whenever as we near the moment where they could, they're going to lose the long end, whether they inflate or deflate, are they going to come in and do yield curve control or some version of it? And away we go. And I, to me, if I'm a betting man, if I'm looking at how I want to allocate my capital, I go back in history. There has been, that I'm aware of, no government with a purely fiat currency that it prints that has willingly not printed the money and instead shrunk the size of itself to preserve the value of its fiat currency denominated bonds. So does that mean I put 100% weight that they're going to print the money or yield curve controls we near that moment? No, but would probably put it at 90%, 80%. And in our business, as you guys know, you don't get 80, 90% shots very often. All right. So let's play this out, continue down this interest rate thing. We've reached February. I believe, at least of what I've read, we are now in terms of duration, the longest inversion we've seen since they started looking at these types of things. And historically, and maybe there's not enough data to back up what I'm about to say, but historically, again, a steepening of this length or durations along these lines have led to some pretty significant downturns. And as a number of people said, it's not the inversion that gets you, it's the re-steepening. And we got close, I think two years versus 30 years flat. Now twos, tens got down to about 13 basis points inversions, and we're basically reinverting now. What are your thoughts on this entire yield curve thing? Like, how are you looking at this? I very much agree and respect the message of the yield curve. I've been doing this too long to not. And we're also in a period where we have never been in terms of Fed balance sheet, U.S. fiscal situation, deficits for this level of employment, geopolitical derivatives, some of what we're seeing in energy, et cetera. And maybe to simplify that, we've never been in a position where a recession in the post-war era, we've never been in an era or in, in a situation where a recession will touch off a debt spiral for the United States of America, the reserve currency issuer of the world. And so when people say, well, it's never different this time, sometimes there are some things that are different. And that's one of the things that are different this time. We have a recession that's going to blow that positive, you know, the real rate number way above two that we were just talking about by virtue of deflation. You know, you're going to get deflation relative to where rates are. Okay, your positive real rate. Let's talk about what that means. Okay, last three recessions in this country, 01, 08, 20, we saw the U.S. deficit from trough to peak rise between 6%, 600 basis points, 800 basis points, and 1,200 basis points, right? So in 01, deficit widened by 600 basis points, 08, 
by 800 basis points by in 2020 by 1200 basis points trough to peak. So let's add 600 basis points. Let's be really conservative. We're running 8% deficits now, 7% deficits now. We add six. We just get a little baby recession like we had in a one. That's a 13% fiscal deficit. And the dollar, so you're going to need to finance 13% to GDP, uh, 3.1, $3.2 trillion deficit. Low case, up to $5 trillion deficit under the worst case, which I think we can take off the table because we shut down a third of the economy, whatever. $3 trillion, 13%. But again, remember the math before of the dollar tends to go up, at least in the early, into a recession until there's some sort of response. And the dollar going up is going to sell you $3 trillion is going to be the net. Banks are going to have credit losses in a recession, and they're sitting on $4.2 trillion in duration that in theory, they're going to need to sell to raise dollars. Foreigners, $13 trillion in debt, dollar up, squeezed, $7.5 trillion in, in treasuries to sell. The refinancing. So you, you quickly can see, oh my gosh, there's nobody with the balance sheet in a recession. Like it's 13% deficit GDP. It would be by far the biggest since World War II. And so it's weird. In a recession, we could actually get like a significant re-steepening because there's just the, the, the supply by demand dynamics in terms of balance sheet capacity to buy all of the net effective issuance gets so imbalanced. So, so that's why I think it's difficult to fully play out exactly. I mean, you can see here, you can see there. How we get from here to there, we can have debates. I don't think here to there is going to last very long at all. I think you get a week or two of the treasury market throwing up all over itself in a recession, yields going up in a recession, which of course nobody has ever seen in any of our careers. Now, we, you talk to EM people like, oh yeah, that happens all the time. It just happened in Turkey, happened in Argentina, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we'd be looking at. I'm kind of stream of consciousness thinking out loud, but that's how I've been thinking about this inversion. What does it mean for recession? Okay, but then what does a recession mean given this debt deficit? And then this like, dynamic where we sort of plugged everybody with treasuries over the last 10 years from a regulatory standpoint that we'd all turn sellers with a stronger dollar in a recession. Luke, I have a two-part question here. Part of the bullish thesis in general is that money will come out of money market and find its way into the stock market. So I'm wondering, first question is, what is that actual catalyst mechanism that makes people want to take money out and chase? The second is, there's not a lot of price discovery, obviously, in the equity market right now. We have large cap companies that are moving 120 billion at a clip, 150 at a clip. Okay. So the quarters are fine, but it's not that good. You know, re-underwriting these companies much higher. Second part to the second question is, you mentioned, which I think is a good thing, the virtuous cycle of the wealth effect. As people make money in the stock market, tax receipts come in, it lowers our deficit, all that stuff that you would expect. The opposite's true when it goes the other direction. So I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Call it $6 trillion, give or take, sitting in money markets, cash, et cetera, I think can be a catalyst. But I think the catalyst for that, they're getting paid nicely, right? Whatever it is, five, five and a quarter. So I don't think it's going to move until a quorum of market participants have the aha moment that I think they're going to have over the next 18 months, give or take, which is, oh my gosh, the U.S. does have a fiscal problem. Oh my gosh, the Fed is loosening. The United States is in fiscal dominance. The Fed is acting whether they to, to finance fiscal deficits because they have to. And when that becomes consensus, and I think it will, barring a productivity miracle, that's when there's an aha moment of, oh God, 5% isn't enough. I need to be being something that better is going to participate in what must happen now. That's what I think the catalyst is for that. Uh, in terms of the second question about receipts, remind me again, what- Both the price discovery or lack of price discovery in equity markets, the chase, coinciding that with stocks are up, 
it's a virtuous cycle for tax receipts and it helps obviously the budget for the US. So that can quickly go the other way. So is that a sustainable thing to be looking at? That seems somewhat ephemeral. The short answer is no, it's not sustainable, but it's a little bit like, I'm a big Guns N' Roses guy. It's a little bit like Mr. Brownstone. I, mean, I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it. So the little got more and more, which is of course about a heroin addiction. And it's the same thing here, uh, which is to say, we know now empirically because we just watched it happen in 2020, 2021, they drove an everything bubble and tax receipts went up 40% year over year and the deficit collapsed. And then Powell tightened, in my opinion, way too soon. He should have let inflation run hotter for longer to get debt to GDP down. Politically, he couldn't, he didn't, whatever. Okay. We can see the other side. He tightened, asset prices fell, unemployment never really moved, and yet the deficit blew out. It doubled. It went from one trillion to two trillion in a year, which surprised a lot of Washington economists. Last fall, the Washington Post, Jason Furman, they're all going, whoa, you know, Jeff Stein, what two trillion deficit. It was just one trillion last year. Biden was making so much progress. What happened here? This is really bad. And it, to me, it was like the least surprising thing in the world. You can see in the IRS data going back to really 95, but just run year over year US federal receipts against year over year total equity market cap or S&P 500 and stocks lead receipts. They are the key marginal driver to marginal tax receipts. And so we had this massive COVID deficit. We generated an everything bubble. So it went from whatever $3 trillion deficit down to a trillion dollar deficit in record time by virtue of the receipt bubble. Then when Powell ended that by raising rates and, and tightening, we saw the deficit blow right back out, pushed us right back into fiscal dominance. And so here we are again. Is it sustainable? Yes and no. Yes, from the standpoint that there's nothing stopping Yellen from weakening the dollar, Powell from cutting rates. There's inflation. There's fear of inflation. That's ultimately it. Their credibility on inflation and bigger picture, I think what they're really afraid of is having to buy the bond market, right? You know, the yield curve control for them is sort of Hotel California. They end up buying a lot of the bond market. It's very inflationary, whatever. That's where I think this ultimately ends up. But they can run this iteration again. I think they're going to have to run this iteration again this year. And given what we saw last year, I think receipts are actually going to be okay next couple of quarters for exactly the reason we just described. But it's one of these things. I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it. The bubble's got to get bigger and bigger to keep it going. And at some point in that process, the six tree and sitting in money market fund goes, oh, wait a second. I'm the sucker at the card table. And every boomer with four 40% of our money in, in long-term treasury. So wait a second, I'm the sucker at the card table. Equity market's up 30 and I'm up five or six. Like this sucks. They sell the bond market. They sell the cash back to presumably the Fed. I don't know. But that's the process we're now in. They let the system evolve this way. They wanted this system of stocks driving margin receipts and now they're getting it good and hard. We weren't going to get out of here before we asked you about gold and you alluded to it earlier, but in 2022, central banks bought, and don't at me if I'm off by a ton or two, I think 1,171 tons of gold, roughly $70.3 billion. I thought they were going to surpass it in 23. They did not. They fell a little bit short, but effectively, the same amount of gold has been purchased by central banks in 23 as they did in 22. Here we are in 2024. You wouldn't know it by the price, although it's hung in there rather well, I would submit, given the fact that we've seen yields move and the dollar move and all those different things. Does gold have its day in 2024? 
I think yes, because I think the dollar, they're going to have to run this machinery of regenerating liquidity to keep control of the long end, to keep all the balls in the air of entitlements, defense, interest in a, uh, an election year in particular. And so I think we see a, a weaker dollar, not radically so, but a weaker dollar through 2024. And I think the Fed stops hiking and probably cuts a few times. And I think that ends up being really good for gold. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if we see gold, you know, mid uh, 2500, 2600 at some point later this year. That's going to tell an interesting story if, in fact, gold gets here. I'm with you, by the way. It's pretty incredible how poorly the mining stocks have done on a broader market that's done well and on a commodity that's done as well, too. It's just interesting to see these things play out. But, folks, you should follow Luke Roman at Luke Roman on Twitter. He is one of the few must-follows out there. I'm thrilled you came back with us. We'll absolutely have you back again. Luke, thanks for joining us here on the tape. Thank you both for having me on. I really enjoyed talking with you and uh, really appreciate the kind words. Back to the dark side. All right, Luke. <laughs> we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.